Welcome to our Sunday evening service, and uh, just for maybe those who are maybe new here, this is kind of just a more more casual time to um, kind of look at different topics in God's Word. Today we're going to look at the topic of canonicity, and um, but we're still in lesson one of the fundamentals of the faith. So we're... Um, I brought your books, Bill, and, but uh, you won't need them tonight. So you won't need your books tonight, but actually, since we're talking about your books, next week you could probably start into lesson two and start into the homework on that, and I think we could probably make that do for next time. So, um, And if you would like a book for this series, I've got, I, I believe I've got some more books at home the, called The Fundamentals of the Faith, published by... Um, Grace Community Church, written by John MacArthur. So we've been in lesson one here, which is just kind of introducing the Bible, and we're going to continue on. Does anyone remember our memory verse? Jody and I were working on that again today. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, now there's going to be four things. First one is correction. For, <laughs> for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. So, good job on that. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, that's our, our memory verse as far as thinking about scripture. A very important verse. We've kind of looked at it and talked about it already. I won't say more about it now. But I will try to get to the next. Um, there we are. This happens every week that this thing, we, every time we move the sound booth closer and we think we'll get it, but uh, having trouble connecting here. But um, anyways, we are general information of the Bible. We've talked about how did we get the Bible and... We've talked about the process of inspiration, prophecy. We talked about when the Bible was written, the dating of Scripture. We've talked about um, a little bit about how the Bible got to us. We talked just a tiny bit about the transmission of Scripture. We probably won't talk about that any more than what we have. And um, today we're going to talk about what belongs in the Bible, the canon of Scripture. So that's where we're kind of at. We we are kind of right here today. Uh, what I didn't do these necessarily in order either that they're on your screen, but what belongs in the Bible, we're going to talk about the canon of Scripture. Well, this is really bad. Okay. Oh, see? Look at that. Oh, that was, oh, okay. You're pushing buttons back there. Okay. We, um, okay. The canon of scripture. What, so what is the canon? And actually, let me, let me just, we're supposed to be right here. I think I'm connected again, so hopefully, hopefully this will work better now. Next time, I guess we're gonna have to say better, closer than the white line, hey? Um, 
The only other way we could fix that is if we brought the laptop closer, but I don't, don't, I wouldn't worry about that. So, the, what we're asking here tonight is, you know, are the 66 books in our Bible the complete Word of God? And how do we know? How do, what, on what basis are we, what are we basing that on? Like, I, I think for most of us, we would just kind of accept that the Bible is the Bible, that it's the Word of God, but how do we know that there's not another book that should be in our Bible? Um, so I'm just gonna, I gotta move up, Rob. Is that okay? Can you like adjust this thing or we'll pause it or whatever? Um, cause I can't, I can't do this the whole time. So let's just, Bill's building this again next time. So <laughs> next week we're, I think we're going to have a new pulpit too. Is that going to work? You, okay. Um, and uh, you know, it might still not work here, but so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about canon. And so, um, first of all, what, what is canon? What are we talking about? When we're talking about canon and, and what, really what the word is, the Greek word, the, the meaning is a rule or a measuring stick. And so we're, we're kind of asking like, how do we, how do we measure scripture? How do we, how do we know what books belong in the Bible is, is really what we're getting to. And scholars kind of talk about this in three different ways, three different ways that it's defined. And we're going to bring these all together to kind of help us understand what I think is the best way to understand canon. But the first way that, that they talk about this is, um, is, is what they call ontologically. And, um, ontologically, the ontological definition is, um, and ontologically means kind of speaking about being. I don't, I didn't write it in my notes, but it kind of has to do with, with being and, and really what is the canon. And so this definition really focuses on the idea of inspiration. And so if something's inspired, it, it has the characteristic of scripture. It's been spoken by God. Therefore, it belongs in the Bible, if that makes sense, right? If, if something is, is inspired by God, then it's scripture and we should have it in our Bible. So that's kind of the first way that we talk about it. And, and in, in that definition, on, on that basis, we could say that the minute the, the last book in the New Testament was written, the canon was complete because John wrote his last letter and that was the last book that was going to be in scripture. Um, then the next definition is, is what we're going to call the functional definition. And, uh, that, that definition of canon looks at canon based on, um, on when a book was recognized and regarded as scripture by Christians. So you could see there's, there's, um, you know, books of scripture going out. Now it's, it's recognized and kind of, um, the, as soon as the Christians say, okay, this is scripture, this is God's word, then that under that definition of canon, that would, that would kind of be that. The, the final definition of canon is what they call the exclusive definition. And that, on this basis, when, when there's a final fixed group of books recognized by the whole church, that's when canon is decided. Okay, so um, those are kind of the three ways that people think about this. Wayne Grudem says this. He says the canon of Scripture is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. And again, that's what we're really getting at when we talk about canon. Which books belong in the Bible? A gentleman named Lee 
McDonald, in his book on the Forgotten Scriptures, The Selection and Rejection of Early Christian Writings, he said this. He's just kind of asking about this. He says, is it when a text is first received authoritatively in the churches or when it is actually acknowledged as Scripture existing in a flexible collection or when a book is placed in a fixed collection of sacred books? This confusion over the meaning of canon persists and it complicates one of the most important issues in current canon research Inappropriate definitions often lead to inappropriate conclusions about biblical canon. Now, what I would say about, about this is, is, is this, that really I think all three of these kind of play a role in our understanding of the canon. So first of all, God inspired books of scripture. And he inspired books of scripture through men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we, we saw that last time in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 21. So men were carried along by the Holy Spirit and uh, God wrote Scripture through them. But then what happened is that Scripture was received by various groups in the churches. And so, you know, if we're thinking about the New Testament, Paul writes a letter. Let's say he writes a letter to the Ephesians. Well, the Ephesians are next thing. They're going, hey, to the people in Galatia, have you seen this letter that Paul wrote us? It's fantastic. And so then they would, would maybe send a copy over there. And, uh, and so different churches kind of received these books and they recognized them as God's word and they began using them. But then thirdly, after a period of time, as all the, the letters were circulated, there was a consensus that grew in the church kind of broadly over the whole world, that that these are the books that God has inspired and that belong in the New Testament. And so that's kind of the way I would kind of take all three of those definitions and kind of put them together, something like that. Now, when we say that, one thing that's important to, to, to realize is the church is not the one who determines the canon, what really determines the canon is when God inspired Scripture. That's kind of the, the main thing. God inspires it, then it's His Word, it's authoritative in our life. But the church now comes and they recognize it, and they formally um, affirm that these are the books that God has inspired. So, um, the first time we see the term canon is the early church father Athanasius. He wrote a, an Easter letter every year as he was kind of one of the, the major bishops in the area at the time. And in 367 AD, he is, one, is the first one to use the term canon. And he says this long quote here, for as much as some have taken in hand to reduce into order for themselves, just disappeared again. Uh, for as much as some have taken in hand to reduce into order for themselves, the books determined apocryphal and to mix them up with the divinely inspired scripture concerning which we have been fully persuaded, as they who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to the fathers, it seemed good to me also, having been urged thereunto by true brethren, and having learned from the beginning to set before you the books included in the canon, and handed down and accredited as divine, to the end that any one who has fallen into error may condemn those who have led him astray, and that those who have continued steadfast in purity may again rejoice having these things brought to his remembrance. And so Athanasius is recognizing there's, there's people um, spreading 
books that, and, and claiming that books are inspired by God, which he calls here apocryphal. And uh, in other words, they don't belong in the scripture. And so Athanasius is going to tell us which books he believes belong in scripture uh, according to kind of the tradition that he's received and that the church has had all of this time. And, and the reason he's going to do this is so that we can not be led astray by false scriptures. And so the doctrine of canonicity just seeks to recognize which books are canonical or which books are inspired by God. Um, now, as we go through this, I'm going to let me say this right, right away early here. If you have questions tonight, um, just put up your hand and go ahead and ask questions. I don't have a whole lot of interaction. If you're like, what in the world is he talking about? I, you know, you can even ask that one, I guess, and I'll try to answer it again. But, um, does that, does that kind of make sense? They were just kind of introducing it here. We haven't even gotten, uh, really anywhere. But I cannot, I cannot do my slides, Rob. I, I don't know what, can you just like push the button for me when I say? So let's just talk a little bit about why is this relevant for us? Why, why does this, uh, matter to us? Well, um, you know, f- first of all, really everything that we've talked about in scripture up to this point kind of leads to this because the, the scriptures are the word of God. They're the, the lamp to our feet, the light to our path. And, uh, they're our authority in all things, right? So whatever scripture says is what God says, and we need to obey what scripture says. And then it just follows that then we need to know what is scripture and what is not scripture. Because if we get confused about that and we take for some, something as scripture that's not scripture, then that thing's going to lead us astray. Or, if we kind of um, are missing something that that should have been in Scripture, and we don't have that thing, then we're not going to have God's voice on that thing. We're, go- we're not going to know what God says on that thing. And so, um, so we need to know this. This is very, very important for us. Go ahead to the the next slide. We need to. So we need to know the Scripture to glorify God. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, "Quote." The precise determination of the extent of the canon of Scripture is therefore of the utmost importance. If we are to trust and obey God, absolutely, we must have a collection of the words that we are certain are God's own words to us. If there are any sections of Scripture about which we have doubts whether they are God's word or not, we will not consider them to have absolute divine authority and we will not trust them as much as we would trust God himself. End quote. And that's really the goal here is we want to be able to trust the word of God to the same extent in the same way that we would trust God himself. Um, go ahead. Next slide, Rob. Now, God even threatens people who take away his word or add to his word with Judgment. And so this is really important. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2, the Lord says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Again, that was Deuteronomy 4, 2, or Deuteronomy 12, 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it, that you, sh- you shall not add to it, nor take away from it. And of course, very well known, the end of the book of Revelation says, 
For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So let's, we're going to begin here with the Old Testament, and uh, we're going to look at what the Old Testament has to say about this, and, and think about the Old Testament canon. So how do we know that we can trust our Old Testament? Well, when it comes to this whole idea, the, the idea of gathering and preserving God's Word really began originally with God Himself. And so God had told um, Moses, when he, remember he wrote the law on the two tablets of stone, he commanded Moses to put those two tablets of stone in the ark so that they would be preserved. Later under God's direction, Moses wrote additional books and uh, additional words which were also put in the ark as well. And so we could go to Exodus 17, 14 and 24, 4 and 34, 27. We won't right now, but God told Moses to, to write what he wrote and he wrote it, and he kept it in the ark as well. And so the word of God was preserved there in the ark. When um, Moses died, God encouraged Joshua to meditate on this book of the law day and night. You guys probably know that verse very well, Joshua 1.7. And so Joshua had this book of the law that God had written through Moses. And so many of God's spokesmen kind of throughout time from that time on, they recorded the message that God spoke through them. And those writings were then preserved by God's people who recognized them as God's word. They recognized those people as true prophets. And, and so there was this growing canon of scripture throughout the Old Testament as, as kind of time goes on and progresses. There's the law of Moses and then Joshua and then Judges and all of these books are being added by the prophets. Now the prophets who wrote the, the books after the Torah, after the books of Moses, they recognized that they were, they were speaking, that, that they were speaking the word of God. They recognized that God was speaking through them. And so next week in our scripture reading, 2 Samuel 23 and verse 2, uh, David said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Or in Psalm 12 and verse 6, David recognized the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Again, that's Psalm 12, 6 and 7. And so we've kind of seen this already that the, the prophets recognized that they were speaking God's word um, in for example, 418 times in the Old Testament, there's a phrase, the Lord spoke, or, um, or sorry, uh, 418 times is thus said the Lord. But then there's all these other things like the Lord spoke, the Lord said, and, and so the, the, the prophets recognized that God was speaking through them. Now, that kind of continued on throughout Israel's history, right up till the final events and the final prophecy in the book of Malachi. And after the, the final events in, in Nehemiah chapter 13 and the book of Malachi, 
There was a period of, of over 400 years with no prophetic voice in Israel. Now, other writings were made during this time, but, but they weren't deemed worthy. They weren't regarded as scripture because there were no prophets in Israel and everyone in Israel knew that. They were waiting for the coming one, which we know as John the Baptist and then the Lord Jesus. And so there was this kind of period of time beginning with Moses and then carried on by the prophets in which scripture was written. But then when Malachi kind of finished, there was 400 years of silence before Jesus came. And so even um, a secular guy, or we could say a, a, a non-Christian guy, his name was Josephus, born in 37 AD. How many have heard of Josephus? Anyone? A little bit? Okay. Josephus was a, a historian, a Jewish historian, born about 37 AD, wrote extensively about things like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, I think if I, if we go to the next slide, I probably have this quote. You want me to try, oh, try it myself? Hey, look at that. That worked. Okay, here we go. This is, uh, Flavius Josephus, quote, he says, for we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us. He's speaking about himself as a Jew. So we don't have this innumerable multitude of books among us disagreeing from and contradicting one another as the Greeks have, but only 22 books which contain the record records of all the past times which are justly believed to be divine. And of them, five books belong to Moses which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind till his death. This interval of time was a little short of 3,000 years. But as to the time from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their time. Wrote down what was done in their time. In 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. It is true, our history hath been written since Artaxerxes very particularly, but hath not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there hath not been an exact succession of prophets since that time, and how firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do, for during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as to either add anything to them or take anything from them or to make any change in them, but it has become natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem these books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them, and if occasion, be willingly to die for them." End quote. Um, so what what Josephus is saying is all Jews recognize from their birth even that these books, these 22 books that he speaks about, are of divine origin, that they are from God himself. Now he says, since the time of Artaxerxes, since the time of Xerxes, there were other books written. Who wants to guess what one, maybe one of those other books w- was? Anybody know what other books were written? After the rain, everyone's looking at me like, why don't you tell me what books were written after? So the book of first and second Maccabees, for example, that was written kind of during that time of silence that, that kind of spoke about the history 
um, of the Jews after the reign of Artaxerxes, after the time of Esther and Nehemiah. Um, and so there were other books like that were written, and the Jews recognized, yeah, they were written, but those books, unlike these divine books, they contradict each other. They're not divinely authored because there's not been an exact succession of prophets since the time of Artaxerxes. And so this is um, Jewish historian uh, Flavius Josephus telling us that there's 22 books. Now you might go, wait a minute, Mike, my Bible has 39 books in my Old Testament. But you might remember if you were here a few times ago that the, the Jews actually numbered their books differently so that they either had 22 books or they had 24 books, depending if they put Jeremiah and Lamentations together. And I think it was Ruth and Judges that were also put together, which would either kind of make it 22 or 24. And of course, First and Second Kings was just Kings. First and Second Chronicles was just Chronicles. First and Second Samuel was just Samuel. And we kind of looked at that, and I'm not going to go through that again, uh, especially not off the top of my head. So um, there we go. This is this is kind of the view of all Jews according to Flavius Josephus. Now, when we come to the New Testament, there is no catalog anywhere in the New Testament of which books belong in the Old Testament. But again, the testimony of Josephus, uh, a gentleman named Melito of Sardis, Origen, Jerome, the Talmud, all of those show that the Old Testament canon, once fixed, was really unaltered. In other words, there's kind of no time in history where there was anyone in that time that thought that other books should have been in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament canon was was very firmly fixed by the time that Jesus came into the world. And so when Jesus points to the law, the prophets, um, the law, the prophets, and the Torah, no, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or sometimes just shorter, the law and the prophets, um, he's pointing to the Old Testament as we know it today. And so the Lord Jesus Christ affirmed the Old Testament in the... And, and when he did that, he affirmed the Old Testament that we have today. And, and just to kind of show you that, let's see if we can get... See, now I have different stuff on my screen than you guys have. Um, see if you can get it to the next one, Rob. Here we go. Nathan Buznitz, one of my professors in seminary, great guy. Uh, he says, quote, Throughout his ministry, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament in its entirety. And he gives scripture references here, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, including its historical reliability, prophetic accuracy, sufficiency, unity, inerrancy, infallibility, divine authorship, and authority. Our Lord used historical incidents in the Old Testament in a manner that evinced his total confidence in their factual historicity, explains Charles Ryrie, obviously our Lord felt he had a reliable Bible, historically true, with every word trustworthy. And now we could again look up all of these scriptures, but the, the, it's just really evident to us that the Lord viewed the Old Testament as the word of God, and he used it even against Satan to prove uh, and, and to defend himself and from temptation. And so that shows our Lord, the Lord Jesus, God in human flesh, trusted his Old Testament Bible. It's the same Old Testament Bible we have today. If the Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough 
for us. Um, a gentleman named William Caven in a, a book called The Fundamentals in uh, volume one, and again, I can't go to this either, Rob, so if you can press that for me, thank you. William Caven says this, uh, he says, we thus find that our Lord recognized the same Old Testament canon as we have. That so far as he makes reference to particular books in the canon, he ascribes them to the writers whose names they bear. He regards the Jewish religion and its sacred books as in a special sense from God. That the writers of scripture in his view spake in the spirit. That their words are so properly chosen that an argument may rest on the exactness of a term. That no part of scripture shall fail of its end or be convicted of error. And that the predictions of scripture are genuine predictions which must all have, which must all in their time receive fulfillment. No higher authority could well be ascribed to the apostolic teaching or to any part of the New Testament scriptures than the Lord attributed to the more ancient scriptures when he declares that jot or tittle shall not pass from them till all be fulfilled. And of course, that's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. And that if men hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Luke 16, 31. And so our, our Lord affirmed the Old Testament, and then William Caven kind of introduces us into the next section, and you can hit the next slide, Rob, um, which is going to go, let's look at the New Testament. So the Old Testament canon was fixed and firm, and the Lord affirmed it. And now we get into the New Testament canon. So the, oops, too far. Um, the New Testament canon was really anticipated in the Old Testament. Uh, if you were an early Jewish Christian, it would have seemed natural to you, and I, I think we can make the case that this is the case, that it would have been natural that to expect that when the New Covenant came, that there would also be with the new covenant a new testament. You know, you think about when the, the ministers of the old covenant recorded their ministry, they, they wrote down scripture. And so we would also expect that when the new covenant came, when the Messiah came, that scripture would be written at that time as well. And one of the things that we see is that whenever God is working in redemption, with that work in redemption also comes a work in, in writing scripture work in Revelation. So Revelation and redemption really go hand in hand. And so when the new covenant comes and the Messiah comes, we would expect some scripture to come along with that. Can you go to the next one for me, Rob? So Michael Kruger in his really helpful book, Canon Revisited, uh, he says, thus we see here in this Old Testament pattern that canonical documents are distinctively the result of God's redemptive activity in behalf of his people and function to proclaim that redemptive activity to his people and to the nations. Canonical books, therefore, are redemptive books. If early Christians came to believe that the actions of Jesus were the fulfillment of the long-awaited redemption of God, and if they were immersed in the Old Testament, if they were immersed in the Old Testament writings and the redemptive revelation pattern that it contained, then it is only natural that they would expect a new revelational deposit to accompany that redemption. Indeed, if covenant documents were given to Israel after the deliverance from Egypt by Moses, how much more would early Christians expect that new covenant documents would be given to the church after deliverance from sin by one greater than Moses, 
Jesus Christ. And so I hope you could kind of follow that from uh, Michael Kruger. Um, next, let's go to actually, and, and I guess we got it on the screen here for you. Deuteronomy 18.15 I think is kind of helpful in that way. And I think we've looked at this text before, but Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15, Moses is speaking here and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so we're expecting a prophet like Moses. And of course, we already know this points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're going to have a prophet like Moses, we're going to also have a prophet who's going to write scripture like Moses, we would expect. Verse 16, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the, among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so again, in this text, we're looking for a prophet like Moses, even, we know now, even greater than Moses, who's going to make a new covenant, not like the old covenant. And so we would expect with this that some scriptures are going to be written when the new covenant comes. And so Jesus then is the foundation of the New Testament canon. Now, Jesus isn't going to write any scripture for us, right? Jesus doesn't actually write any books of the Bible, but what he does is he promises the apostles that they're going to remember everything and that they're going to be able to write uh, scripture. Oh, this is so, so difficult, guys. So we need to go back three. I don't know. Do you know how to go back on that? If you push shift space... Go back one more so I can just see what we had. Is that? Okay. So yeah, Jesus promised that, that he would, just kind of what I said, so let's go to the next one. Um, John 14. So I, uh, yeah, go ahead and open your Bible. Look at John 14. We're going to look at 23 to 26. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home within him or with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so here's Jesus saying that, that my words are not my words, they're the words of the Father who sent me. But now I am going to send you the Holy Spirit and you're going to remember all the things that I said to you and you're going to have the remembrance of these things. And so from this promise is what Scripture is is going to come out of. Scripture is going to come through these promises. Now, the next one is in John chapter 16. And uh, starting in verse 12, John 16 and verse 12, I still have many things to say to you. Again, Jesus is talking to the uh, the 11 here. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes. 
He will guide you into all the truth, for you will not speak on, for, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so again, there's this promise that the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to speak to the disciples and they're going to, they're going to be guided into all truth. Let's go to the next one. Okay. Let's go to uh, another place where we kind of see this same pattern is in, in Hebrews uh, chapter one. Okay. Hebrews. Uh, chapter 1. Let's go there. So chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So the author of Hebrews is saying God has spoken to us in these last days through the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we recognize that it's actually not Christ so much who's speaking as it's his apostles. And so if you go to Hebrews chapter 2 and starting at verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to, it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so again, we've, we see here that, that God is speaking to us through his son, but, but his son is really speaking through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And even God is working signs and wonders and various miracles to demonstrate that, that these people are his representatives, just like God worked in signs and wonders through Moses to demonstrate that he was truly God's representative and the one who spoke on behalf of God. And so Michael Kruger, again in Canon Revisited, he says, quote, uh, you just had it there on your screen, in regard to the establishment of the new covenant, the message of redemption in Jesus Christ was entrusted to the apostles of Christ, to whom he gave his full authority and power. And he quotes from Luke ten sixteen: the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. The apostles are the link between the redemptive events themselves and the subsequent announcement of those events. Not only did the apostles themselves write many of the New Testament documents, but in a broader sense, they presided over the transmission of the apostolic deposit and labored to make sure that the message of Christ was firmly and accurately preserved for future generations through the help of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the New Testament canon is not so much a collection of writings by apostles, but a collection of apostolic writings, writings that bear the authoritative message of the apostles and derive from the foundational apostolic era, even if not directly from their hands. And so what Kruger's saying is even if it wasn't written by Matthew, who was an apostle, it was maybe written by Jude, but yet the apostles kind of oversaw this whole what he calls the apostolic deposit. And so all of these scriptures of the New Testament that were, again, promised through Jesus Christ. Um, so then 
let's see, I'm going to try pushing the button. It worked for me this time. I'm going to push it again. Worked this time. Uh, Norman Geisler and, uh, and William Nix in a, a really helpful book called A General Introduction to the Bible, they say, quote, in full consciousness and fulfillment of Jesus's oft repeated promise to guide them unto all the truth, the apostles claim divine authority for what they taught orally and in their writings. In effect, the authority of an apostle was the authority of Christ, and the only credential necessary to commend the authority of any particular writing was its apost- apostolicity. So, in other words, if, if you're an apostle, Jesus sent you. And so Jesus says, if, if you receive the apostles, you receive me, because Jesus is working through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And when the, when the church came to recognize that, they had to submit to the authority of the apostles. And so Jesus' promise makes what we call apostolicity the main criteria for canonicity. In other words, if it's written by an apostle, then it's going to be authoritative for the church because Jesus commissioned them and promised them that the Spirit would do this very thing. And so when they go and they, they write to the churches, they expect the churches to obey them, not because they're so powerful, but because they're bringing God's Word to the churches and they recognize that. And so apostolicity makes the main criteria for canonicity. Now, when we look through the 27 books of the New Testament, and maybe except for Hebrews, although we just saw that verse in Hebrews that, that talked about the apostles and, and God speaking through his son there, but there's specific claims for inspiration in each of the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, specific claims for inspiration. And, and we could go through that. Norman Geisler and William Nix in their book do go through each book and they show the places. I'm not going to do that for us today. Um, but, but what they do is Norman Geisler and, and Nix, they go through each of the 27 New Testament books and they, they kind of show how it's connected to the apostles. And they conclude that section with these words that are on your screen. It, it says, quote, The claim for inspiration in the New Testament is derived from the fact that Jesus promised his disciples that he would guide them into all the truth by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament writers claimed the fulfillment of that promise for their oral message and their writings. They claimed that their oral message was, one, on the same level as Old Testament message of the prophets, two, the foundation of the New Testament church, and three, authoritative for the church. So the apostles were saying that their oral message was, it was the word of God, it was on par with the Old Testament, and it was authoritative. And then third, or or second here, next here, they also claimed to be directed by the Holy Spirit in their writings, which they held to be one prophetic, two sacred scripture, three divinely authoritative, and four commanded to be read and circulated in the churches. And they say, go ahead and look at Colossians 4.16 for that, 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Furthermore, when a survey is made of all the books of the New Testament, a claim is found in each individual book for its own divine origin and authority, either directly or indirectly, end quote. Now let's let's go and 
just let me just, let me just read for you a couple of scriptures here. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that these are from the ESV translation in my notes, but I'm not even exactly 100% sure about that. But one of the things, and, and we've already looked at this one, um, but in 1 Timothy 5.18, remember there Paul quotes Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where it says that the laborer is worthy of his wages. And he also quotes in that same context, he quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And when he quotes it, he says, for the scripture says. And so we see that Paul, already in 1 Timothy 5, puts what Luke wrote on par with what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. Also, I think we looked at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, where Peter talks about how Paul's epistles were, um, were twisted by kind of wicked men, even as, quote, the rest of the scriptures. And so Peter views Paul's writings as equal with the scriptures. And of course, when Paul and, or Peter or these guys write the letters to their churches, they're ex- they expect that, that people are going to obey them because they're apostles of Christ and they recognize that Christ is speaking through them to the churches. And so in 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandment of the Lord. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 14.37. Or in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says this, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And then in chapter 4 and verse 15 of the same letter, 1 Thessalonians, Paul Paul says, excuse me, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Or in 2 Peter 3 verses 1 and 2, very similarly, Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both of which I stir you up, up, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And so Peter is putting there on par the, the, what was spoken by the holy prophets. We would think of that probably as the Old Testament and also the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And he really puts both on the same level. And so B.B. Warfield kind of summarizing this section, uh, he says, quote, What needs emphasis at present about these facts is that they obviously are not evidences of a gradually heightening estimate of the New Testament books, originally received on a lower level, and just beginning to be tentatively accounted as scripture, they are conclusive evidences rather of the estimation of the New Testament books from the very beginning as scripture and of their attachment as scripture to the other scriptures already in hand. He says the early Christians did not then first form a rival canon of new books which came only gradually to be accounted as of equal divinity and authority with the old books, They received new book after new book from the apostolic circle as equally scripture with the old books and added them one by one to the collection of old books as additional scriptures until at length the new books thus added were numerous enough to be looked upon as another section of the scriptures. So you see what's happening there? Just kind of book after book is getting written by Peter and by Paul 
and by Matthew and by Luke, and, and the church is receiving these as divinely authoritative books on par with the rest of Scripture, and, and, and they're immediately recognizing them when they receive them as this is the Word of God from Paul. This is the Word of God from Peter. This is the Word of God from Mark. And, uh, and so, now, so immediately they're recognized as authoritative. Now, when the apostolic age ended then, of course, the revelation ended as well, as you would have expected, just like it ended previously when, when that all of, had happened. And so we have very early, this is Ignatius, the church father Ignatius. He was about 30 AD to 107 AD was kind of his lifespan. He wrote a letter to the Romans that's not regarded as scripture. And and here's why. Look what he says in that letter. He says, I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commandments unto you. They were apostles of Jesus Christ. I am the least, and he's in context of believers. They were free as the servants of God, while I am, even until now, a servant. And so Ignatius, very early on, he was a disciple of uh, of John the Apostle, uh, he recognized, I'm not on the same par as Peter and, uh, as Peter and Paul were. And really all throughout church history, after the apostolic age, the men, none of these men claimed that they were on the same level as apostles. And, and so they recognized that something special had happened in that apostolic age when the Holy Spirit, um, empowered those men, those apostles to write scripture. And so once the New Testament was written, the church recognized it as the Word of God. And again, it was almost immediately that the Ephesian church would have recognized a letter from Paul as Scripture and as authoritative. And so there was an immediate expectation that the church submit to God's Word given through the apostles. Um, and this is important as we get into this because, you know, what what's going to happen is over time... Eventually, the church is going to kind of recognize the completed canon, and we already saw that that wasn't until 367 when Athanasius wrote his Easter letter and he got all the 27 books. But what we need to recognize is that very early on, as soon as the church received a letter from Paul, they recognized it as authoritative, but now it's just going to take time for everyone to recognize all the books because they don't have the letter from Paul. You know, maybe, maybe who knows when when the, the Ephesian church, the, the letter to the Ephesians got to every other church in the world, right? And so Harry Gamble kind of talking about how do we think about canon here, he says, quote, the letters of Paul and the synoptic gospels had been valued so long and so widely that their orthodoxy could only be taken for granted. It would have been nonsensical for the church to have inquired, for example, into the orthodoxy of Paul. I hope you kind of get what, the, what, what we're getting at here. Um, later on, when we talk about the, the scriptures we, and, and recognizing the canon, we talk about like these tests. Well, was it orthodox? Did it align with other scripture? But of course, if you're the Galatians and you get a letter from Paul, you're going to immediately recognize that Paul is speaking the word of God to you and you're going to immediately recognize the authority of Paul and now you're going to see this letter. It's not until later on in history that, that people started asking, hey, does, was this really written by Paul or was it not written by Paul? And so again, similarly, John Barton in his book, The Spirit and the Letter, 
Astonishingly early, he says, astonishingly early, the great central core of the present New Testament was already being treated as the main authoritative source for Christians. There is little to suggest that there were any serious controversies about the synoptics, John, or the major Pauline epistles. So right away, astonishingly early, the church recognizes these books as scripture. So again, like I said already, these, um, these books were, uh, these writings, these New Testament writings were now copied and they were distributed to various churches. And again, the first few hundred years of church history is a time of severe persecution. So in the midst of persecution, the church is writing and copying these letters and spreading them to the other churches. Uh, again, Peter commended Paul's writings. Uh, Paul quoted Luke and De- Deuteronomy as scripture. And um, just kind of as we think about the, this early time in the church, uh, already Ignatius in 30, between, you know, probably around between 70, realistically 70 and 107 AD, he already lists in his writings, he lists seven books. And of course, when we think about these books that people um, quote in, the, in, in, what, in their writings, it could be that they knew of other books, they just didn't happen to quote it, right? If you took all of my teaching that I've given in the last three years, I probably wouldn't have quoted every single book of the Bible either. And so Ignatius, we know, knew of at least seven books and quotes from them, but he might have known more. And so Clement of Rome, we, in 95 AD, he's got eight books that, that he quotes. Polycarp, 108 AD, 15 books of the New Testament he quotes, references, or alludes to. Uh, Hippolytus, between 170 and 235 AD, two, uh, 22 books. Irenaeus quotes or alludes to 21 books. Uh, the Muratorian Canon, which was a collection of, of 23 books recognized as canonical, uh, has, again, 23 books in this Muratorian Canon, and it only doesn't have Hebrews, James, and the epistles of Peter. Um, and then Eusebius, in between 315 and, 80, and 386 AD, he, he has 27 books that he is aware of. Uh, again, Athanasius, 27 books. I'm just going to look. Did I? Yeah. Tw- so um, Eusebius gives us a complete list of all 27 books of the New Testament. Although Eusebius admits that some of these books were disputed, whether they, they were truly authentic and belonged in the canon. And then Athanasius's Easter letter, 376 AD, um, lists all the 27 books of our current New Testament, as well as the 22 books of the Old Testament. And I believe I have that quote. Uh, no, I don't. So, I'm, But I do have it right here. So I'm going to read you. This is from Athanasius. And again, after listing the 22 books of the Old Testament, ex- exactly as in our Bibles today, he continues and he says, quote, again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. For these are the four Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Afterward, the Acts of the Apostles and Epistles called Catholic, seven, viz. of James, one, of Peter, two, of John, three. After these, one of Jude. In addition, there are 14 epistles of Paul written in this order. The first to the Romans, then two to the Corinthians. After these, to the Galatians. Next to the Ephesians, then to the Philippians. Then to the Colossians, after these, two to the Thessalonians, and that one to the Hebrews, and again, two to Timothy, one to Titus, and lastly, that to Philemon. 
And besides the revelation of John, these are the fountains of salvation, that they who thirst may be satisfied with living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take from take aught from these. For concerning these, the Lord put to shame the Sadducees, saying, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures. And he reproved the Jews, saying, Search the Scriptures, for these are they that testify of me. And again, that is uh, just really great. Athanasius's Easter letter, 376 A.D. Athanasius knows of all of these books in our New Testament and recognizes that the church before him recognized those as Scripture. Now, um, at the Synod of Hippo in 393 A.D., so about you know 20-something years after Athanasius's letter, and then again at the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D., all 27 books were recognized as authentic, authoritative, inspired Scripture. And so, again, immediately recognized when they were received, but then kind of officially recognized in these councils, 376 by Athanasius, and then um, 397 Council of Carthage. Now, what often happens in church history is that heretics and false teachers help us to solidify things that we were already sure of. Okay, so, you know, that we're already sure of the doctrine of the Trinity, but a false teacher comes up and now we really have to kind of nail that down and be able to teach on that or the, the humanity and divinity of Christ or things like this. When, when false teaching comes along, all of a sudden the church has to rise up and kind of solidify and, um, and, and, and formally recognize what they teach on a specific issue. And so what happened, again, there was certain books that were disputed and, and the church kind of rallied against this. And so Marcion, uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of Marcion. Marcion, about 85, 160 AD, uh, he came up with his own canon. He didn't like all these other books. And so Marcion said, there's only 10 epistles that are truly from Paul. And he kind of went through the book of Luke and, and ripped out the sections that he didn't like. He also didn't like the Old Testament, um, kind of like very, actually very much like what it sounds like Andy Stanley's doing these days. Um, and so he kind of just liked his sections and, and he had his own custom version of Luke where he kind of took his Sharpie and crossed out all the parts that he didn't like. And so he starts kind of teaching this stuff. And all of a sudden the church has to go and say, Hey, your version of Luke is corrupted. And Paul wrote 14 letters, not 10. And, and so they're starting to answer heretics like this already starting about 85 to 160. So that's Marcion. Also, there was other gospels in quotes written, uh, which are known as the Gnostic gospels. Those were written and, and, and recognized to be false by the church. Uh, the Montanists in about 156 to 172 AD, they claimed to be prophets and, uh, they kind of came up with their own canon as well. And, uh, they claimed to be speaking new revelation. And so they were wanting to add to scripture. And so the church had to answer that. Um, but also throughout history, there were certain books that, that were kind of doubted at times whether they should be in the canon or not. And, and so, we're going to kind of spend a little bit of time just kind of talking about some of these. Um, the book of Hebrews was originally questioned because of its unknown authorship. 
Now, most of the early church fathers, or some of the early church fathers at least, believed that, that Hebrews was written by Paul, and that's why it was originally included in the canon. Um, but also, some heretics were the, the Montanists and the Arians, they really liked the book of Hebrews, and so it made the rest of the church kind of wonder if Hebrews really should belong in the canon. And so there was kind of debate about that. The book had already been alluded to very early by Justin Martyr, 100 to 165 AD. Clement of Rome in 96 AD knew of Hebrews and accepted it as well. Remember, he was the one who had had accepted eight letters very early on. Um, But that's why Hebrews was questioned for a time. Also, the book of James was questioned for a time. Why do you guys think the book of James might have been questioned? Any guesses? What's the big issue with James? Yeah, that's right. They were trying to harmonize James and what James was writing with what Paul was writing. And some people in church history thought there was a contradiction there. And even the famed Martin Luther kind of called at one point, called James the epistle of straw. But then, remember, he later repented of that. Um, and so there was question about the book of James. But again, Clement of of Rome has a, an excellent discussion of justification by faith that also alludes to James's letter and shows that there's no contradiction. And so James was questioned for that reason for a while. Second Peter seems to have been the most disputed book of all the books in the canon. Uh, it was questioned because of the, the, the question of whether it had a, a, a different style than first Peter. And so when you come in, and you, especially if you're in the original language, but, but even in the English, maybe you can look at first Peter and you look at second Peter and you can see that there's a difference in the writing style of those letters. And so people came along and said, well, this couldn't have been written by Peter because it's so different. But first Peter five twelve answers that. And actually, why don't we just go ahead and turn there? First Peter chapter five, verse 12, he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so, um, first Peter was written by the hand of Silvanus and Silvanus probably cleaned up or whatever he did, um, just like if some of you maybe read a baptism testimony and you've kind of given your testimony by the hand of Mike because I, I edit your testimony so much and give you some feedback or whatever. Um, some of you are kind of laughing about that. Some of you uh, are very gracious in that regard. But that's just I, I just have trouble not editing stuff. And I, I, I'm guessing Sylvanus was kind of like that as well. And the letter that came from Peter through Sylvanus ended up quite different than the letter that came from Peter without Sylvanus. And so um, also today there's even more evidence than than maybe the church had then that to, to rightly attribute this uh, epistle to the Apostle Peter. And uh, I have a footnote in my notes here that says if you want to find out more about that, go to Norm Geisler and Williams Nick's books on page 299 and to 300. 2nd um, and 3rd John, of course, really short letters written to individuals. It's it's likely that they didn't circulate as quickly as the other letters, and so they were questioned for a time. Uh, the book of Jude, the, authes- the authenticity of the book of Jude wasn't questioned, but there was question of whether it belonged in the canon. 
Uh, Jude was written by the brother of James, who wasn't an apostle. And um, the quote at the end there uh, from the apocryphal book of Enoch led some to hesitancy about whether the book belonged. But again, what I would say about that quotation is that the quotation in no way demands the approval of that whole book of Enoch. And um, by 170 AD, the book of Jude was was widely used and recognized. And then the church disputed for a time, they disputed the book of Revelation. Again, because, you know, uh, again, many of the early church fathers recognized Revelation as scripture. Um, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, all of them recognized the book of Revelation as scripture. But later on in church history, it was questioned around the, the early, middle, fourth century, kind of just before Athanasius' time, uh, really because of issues in interpreting it, and also because it became a favorite book of the heretics. And I think also there was some hesitancy about it because there's a curse on the end if you add to it or take away from it. And so people were just scared of the book of Revelation, kind of like today, I think. You know, I think sometimes there's a little bit of fear about the book of Revelation. And so there was some questioning about that late in church history. Now, the fact that these books were questioned from time to time and that the complete list took a while before it was officially recognized by the end of the 4th century shouldn't discourage us at all, I don't think. Uh, again, until 313 AD, the church was under severe persecution and um, or at least varying degrees of persecution throughout that time. You know, there's not a printing press. They're handwriting these books. They're they're writing on papyrus. They're spreading these letters around. Um, there's there's really no real great way to know is this really from the Apostle Paul? And so questions kind of come as these books spread around. Um, and so it took a little while for the church to recognize and officially even have the freedom to get together and and have a a church council when they could kind of talk about things like this. But when they did, and when they kind of got around to doing that, uh, again, around 397 in the, uh, the Council of, or the Synod of Carthage, they asked questions such as these, you know, was this book written by a prophet of God? Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Does the message tell the truth about God? Did it come from, did it come with the power of God? Was it accepted by the people of God? And again, the main criteria was for for its acceptance was the apostolicity and the propheticity, if those are words, um, including books that were written under apostolic authority, like books like Mark, who Mark wasn't an apostle, but he was closely written with association from Peter, and so it was accepted on that basis. Uh, questionable books were compared to the core New Testament books, and they were compared to the existing Old Testament to see if they were orthodox or not. And so those are the disputed books. And um, and we have time now, I think, to just kind of briefly look at books that are not included in the canon. So these are the books that are included. And I think it's helpful, at least for you to hear from me, that there's, there's not, there never was a, a serious question of whether other books should be added to what we have in the New Testament, at least as far as the New Testament. Again, the Old Testament was very settled already by the time of Jesus. 
Nobody wanted to add anything to what was in the Old Testament. We're just talking really about the New Testament books. And there's there's no books that were very seriously considered. And honestly, I, I've read many of these books. I've read, you know, books like um, the Didache and and First and Second Maccabees and 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 some of these other books. And there's especially the the, the writings of the early church fathers. They are just not anywhere near on par with Scripture. And you just you just start reading into the maybe the Epistle of Ignatius or the Epistle of Irenaeus or um, his letters to the Corinthians, and it's just nothing like Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's 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 just so obviously not Scripture. It's so obvious that these are men just kind of wrestling with truth and and you know probably true believers, but but just it's just nothing like what you see in the New Testament. And so there was books that weren't included. And these books start, we're going to start with the Apocrypha. Uh, the Old Testament Apocryphal books were, again, written in that time that Josephus talked about in the intertestamental period, after Malachi, before the coming of Jesus, about that 400 years of silence there, where there was no, in, in Josephus's words, there was no direct succession of prophets in that time. Now, these books were never regarded by the Jews as equal with Scripture, um, we already saw that in the quotation from Josephus again. Uh, one of the books even laments the fact that there were no prophets in this period. And so even the book itself recognizes, oh, there's no prophets. This really sucks. I wish we had some prophets. But the, the apocryphal books are Tobit, Judith, Additions to Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the Epistle of Jeremiah, Song of the Three Children, the Story of Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, First Maccabees, Second Maccabees. Now, where do you guys recognize those books from? Does anyone know? Anyone heard about those books? Not really. Couple people. Do you do you know where it's from, Dustin? Where have you seen it? Yeah, the Catholic Bible. Okay, so now the question is, well, why do the Catholics have those books in their Bible? Do, you know, should we have them in our Bible if the Catholics have them? Um, well, let, let's talk about that a little bit. Jerome included these books. Who knows who Jerome is? Maybe I'm just like talking nonsense to you guys, but Jerome is like, uh, do I have a date for Jerome in here? I don't have a date for Jerome. I'm going to guess like about 300, 400. So, you know, you can look that up on Wikipedia or something after. But Jerome was uh, a Christian guy who went back and, and, and went to Israel and uh, Jerusalem area, learned Hebrew, translated the Bible into Latin. Jerome is the one who wrote the Latin Vulgate. And you've probably heard of the Latin Vulgate. And Jerome included these books that I just listed, these books called apocryphal, in the Latin Vulgate, but he included them under protest at the request of Damasus, the bishop of Rome. Uh, now, neither Jerome nor the Jews at that time regarded those books as scripture. And, and here's what Jerome put in the preface of his Latin Vulgate. Um, I don't have this quote in there, so I just have it here. You're going to have to just listen. Quote, that the Hebrews have 22 letters is testified by the Syrian and Chaldean languages, which are nearly related to the Hebrew. So there's the, 
the Syrian, I think it's pronounced the Prashida, uh, and there's the a, a Chalcedonian, a, a Chalcedian um, translation as well of of the Old Testament. And so Jerome's saying, hey, the Hebrews have 22 letters. This Syrian Prashida has this. The Chalcedonian language has this, which are, those languages are nearly related to Hebrew, for they have, he says, they have 22 elementary sounds which are pronounced the same way, but are differently written, as then there are 22 elementary characters by means of which we write in Hebrew all we say, and the compass of the human voice is contained within their limits, so we reckon 22 books by which as by the alphabet of the doctrine of God, a righteous man is instructed in tender infancy and, as it were, while still at the breast. And then he lists each of the Old Testament books here. So what, what Jerome's saying in kind of a difficult way is there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and there's 22 books in the Old Testament and that's what all the, the Hebrews know. So he lists all the books, again, same as what we have in our Bible, and he says, and then he goes on and he says, and so there are 22 books of the Old Testament, that is, five of Moses, eight of the prophets, nine of the hagiographa, which would be like um, uh, the, the, um, the writings, that, that's, that's like um, Daniel and Psalms and Proverbs and stuff like that. Um, nine of the hagiographa, though some include Ruth and he calls it Kenoth, which is Lamentations, amongst the Hagiographa, and think that and think that these books ought to be reckoned separately. We should thus have twenty-four books of the old law, and that this preface to the Scriptures may serve as a helmeted introduction to all the books which we turn from Hebrew into Latin, so that we may be assured that what is not found in our list must be placed among the apocryphal writings. Wisdom, therefore, which generally bears the name of Solomon and the book of Jesus, the son of Syriac and Judith and Tobit and the shepherd are not in the canon, end quote. So Jerome, even though he was, he was requested to translate these books and he translated them into Latin, he recognized these books weren't scripture. The Jews recognized that, Jerome recognized that, and he wrote it kind of forever in his preface, so that we would know which books belong to Scripture. But again, this is a time when there's not a lot of books. And so they, they, these books are viewed as historically helpful, but not inspired by God. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, as, as you know, they almost exclusively used the Latin Vulgate. And so they had all of these books in their Latin Vulgate, and they, quote-unquote, canonized these books at the Council of Trent in 1546, during what is known as the Counter-Reformation. So even the Roman Catholic Church didn't recognize these as scriptural until 1546, where what they wanted to do, which is super late in church history, what they wanted to do then was protect their doctrine of the purgatory and some of these other things from um, the Reformation. And so in the Counter-Reformation, they now said, no, these books are scripture as well. But up until that point, they weren't recognized as scripture, and Jerome even explicitly says that. So, um, that's the Apocrypha, Jerome's preface, Counter-Reformation. Now we have a New Testament Apocrypha. The New Testament Apocrypha, other writings that, that didn't belong in the New Testament. 
Some of these books include uh, Pseudo-Barnabas, 1st and 2nd Corinthians by Clement of Rome, The Shepherd of Hermas, The Didache, Apocalypse of Peter, The Acts of Paul, and Thecla, The Gospel According to the Hebrews, The Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, and The Seven Epistles of Ignatius. These are, are letters that we know of that were written at that time, but were never regarded as Scripture. And uh, at times, though, in various little pockets in the world, they were they were very well used. And so the Didache is is very well used, but it's it's not regarded as scripture. These books were were not regarded as inspired. Uh, none of them had more than a, a brief acceptance, or maybe a local acceptance in kind of one little area. They were recognized as as useful books. They were recognized as of historical value. But even again, like I said, a simple reading of them would be sufficient for most believers to understand that they do not belong in the canon. And so um, recently on the, the baptism thing, for example, there's some quotes about baptism from the Didache. I read through the Didache and it's, it's you know, like I don't even, if, if I was, if I was preaching from the Didache, you guys wouldn't, wouldn't have me around very long because you would just recognize this is, this is nothing like Matthew. And so... Um, you know, a, a simple reading of most of these books would show you these, these don't mer- bear the marks of inspiration. Um, so that's the, that's the New Testament Apocrypha. Then there's another group of books that most of them were written, written quite a bit later. These are called the Pseudepigrapha. And the Pseudepigrapha, pseudo is, is kind of like false. And so false writings. And most of these writings were, were written under the name of somebody kind of famous, somebody accepted. Uh, they were mostly written late in church history. Uh, in, by the ninth century, a guy named Photius listed some 280 such books. 280 books that, that were written kind of falsely under the name of apostles. Many of those don't exist today and are, are only known by references to them in other writings. Um, but some of these are more well-known. These would be books like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Hebrews, the Gospel of Matthias, the Proto-Evangelium of James, the Acts of Andrew. These are, these are books that are called pseudepigrapha. They weren't really written by Andrew. Um, they weren't really written by Peter. Peter didn't write a gospel. They were written later in church history. Uh, and, um, and, and, and tried to kind of make their way into the church that way, but the church really rejected these and, and knew they weren't scripture. Here's what Eusebius says about these. Again, Eusebius, church historian, between 260 and 340 AD, so even a little bit before Athanasius, he says, quote, we have felt compelled to give this catalog in order that we might be able to know both these works and those that are cited by the heretics under the name of the apostles, including, for instance, such books as the Gospels of Peter, of Thomas, of Matthias, or of any others besides them, and the Act of Andrew, the Acts of Andrew and John and the other apostles, which no one belonging to the succession of ecclesiastical writers has deemed worthy of mention in his writings. And further, the character of the style is at variance with apostolic usage, and both the thoughts and the purpose of the things that are related in them are so completely out of accord with the true orthodoxy that they clearly show themselves to be the fictitions of heretics. Wherefore, 
They are not placed even among the rejected writings, but all of them to be cast aside as absurd and impious, end quote. That's what Eusebius said about those books in about 300 A.D. So, um, with that, I I have here self-authenticating canon. You know, really, ultimately, as we talked about last time, the only way that we can really be truly convinced of the Scripture is by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives through the reading of Scripture. Again, if we point to some other reason, why do I believe the Bible? Well, I believe the Bible because um, Mike taught a class on the canon, and he said that the 66 books are the Scripture. Well, that's not a good enough reason. Now, I'm a higher authority than God speaking through His Word. God, if, if, if God is the ultimate authority and He speaks through His Word, then we have to recognize it from its Word. Any, anything that's an ultimate authority has to kind of carry its own authentication with it, if we can say it like that. Um, I can't appeal to something else to prove that the Bible is inspired because then that something else becomes a higher authority than, than God and His Word. And so, ultimately, the only way for us to be convinced that the Bible and the 66 books are the Word of God is by reading them and by the Holy Spirit working in our lives, even saving us through it. Because unless we're saved, Scripture tells us that we're blinded to the truth and we're not able to understand because these things are spiritually discerned. And so God has to work through His Word and save us and give us the conviction and convincing that the Bible is the Word of God. But He is able to do that. He does do that. He does convince us. And so really, ultimately, we have to rely on God to convince us of the Word. But some of these kind of studies are helpful that we know that there's really... There's no book that we're, that's like almost made it in, but didn't. No matter what Bart Ehrman says, that's just not the case. Um, and if you don't know who Bart Ehrman is, don't, don't worry about it. But, um, again, that, that's really all that I have time to say about that. Um, it's not really a straightforward issue, Canon. We've kind of looked at this, uh, from a, from a number of perspectives, uh, and, uh, and really, God has given us his word through providence. The, the books that we have have been preserved for all of these thousands of years now. And uh, God worked to preserve the writings that he wanted. You know, remember, for example, Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians, but we only have what we call first and second Corinthians. He mentions those other letters in first and second Corinthians that we have, but those writings, for whatever reason, weren't preserved for us and we don't have them now. And so we have the books that God has preserved. And the Bible didn't just come to us in, in, in some kind of a, a, a miraculous way. It didn't, it didn't float down from heaven in the 66 books. God used regular means, regular people. He used copyists. He used 40 different authors through 1500 years to write one complete, um, divinely inspired, that non-contradictory book to men. And so over 1500 years, 40 different authors, He's given us this book. In the 66 books of the Bible, this is the Word of God. This is the complete Word of God able to make us wise for salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, inspired and profitable for man. Uh, as Athanasius said, From this, this is the fountain of living water for those who thirst. And so hopefully that's been helpful. This is going to be our, our last time talking about 
the general introduction of the Bible. Next time we're going to come back, we're going to start lesson two, and we're going to start talking about, well, how do we interpret this thing if we've got it? So, um, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully that's helpful for you. I went a little bit over time, but thanks for bearing with me tonight. Uh, let's just pray. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for this book, Lord, this, this book that you have given us by your providence. We thank you that you oversee all things and that you have given us your word through these 40 different men, through these 1500 years of history. Thank you that we have the word of God in our own language. Pray that you'd help us to understand it now and uh, to live it out for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.